Welcome to Season 9 of the Leadership Educator Podcast, your source for knowledge and expertise on facilitating leadership learning. Are you passionate about leadership education? Do you want to expand your resource toolbox with practical teaching, learning, and program design strategies? This is the podcast for you. If you haven't done so already, please hit subscribe so you'll never miss an episode. Before we get into this episode, Dan and I are calling out all of you leadership educators. Are you struggling to spice up your learning activities? Do you need somebody to bounce your ideas off of that has no stakes in the game? Meaning they're not your students, they're not your faculty peers, they're not your dean? Well, connect with us for expert guidance on creating engaging and inclusive classroom learning environments. Are you an academic leader seeking a program reviewer? Dan has availability this semester and would love to help you elevate your approach with customized feedback on your program. You can reach out to both of us through LinkedIn today. Welcome to season nine of the Leadership Educator Podcast. I am Lauren Bullock, Assistant Professor of Instruction at Temple University. And I'm Dan Jenkins, Professor of Leadership and Organizational Studies at the University of Southern Maine. And this season, we're discussing generative learning for leadership educators. And we see it as an approach to leadership development and education that focuses on cultivating generative thinking and behaviors in leaders. Uh, Generative thinking is the ability to create new possibilities, think systemically, and generate innovative solutions to complex problems. Uh, It involves shifting from a reactive or problem-solving mindset to a proactive and creative mindset. Uh, So then, as we think about this within uh, leadership education, generative leadership education may aim to develop leaders who can navigate uncertainty, inspire collaboration, and create positive change in their organizations and communities. It'll often involve experiential learning, reflection, the development of skills like systems thinking, adaptive leadership, and emotional intelligence. We know y'all are familiar with a lot of those concepts, so our hope is that we bring in guests this season to talk about how they're thinking about those things and doing post-pandemic. With that said, we've invited leadership educators, faculty and other disciplines who have won awards for their teaching, faculty developers, and scholars to talk about artificial intelligence, ethics, social phenomena, disruptions, and adaptive challenges, amongst other emerging trends and issues affecting leaders in this space. We're broadly asking everyone, how are you processing what's happening and what's affecting our classrooms and campuses as you're also trying to develop curriculum teach workshops and courses, evaluate leadership learning, and build the community. That's right. So today we are welcoming and really excited to uh, have Dr. Claire Forsty. Uh, She's an education program specialist who provides programming and consulting with a particular interest in inclusive teaching principles and practices. All of this at the University of Minnesota. Uh, She holds a degree in sociology from Northwestern University, and she supports graduate students, faculty, and instructors in liberal arts disciplines and uh, across the UM Morris and Rochester campuses. Uh, Claire teaches in the Preparing Future Faculty program. Uh, She co-facilitates the Pedagogical Innovations Journal Club and consults and offers programming on a variety of evidence-based pedagogies. Welcome to the show, Claire. Thank you. You're making me sound really good, Dan. Thank you. That's my pleasure. My pleasure. So uh, kind of a funny thing. Uh, So I found you, or I say we found you through a wonderful resource that Dr. D. Fink shared with me when he visited our our USM campus, which is also something we have in common, but just a sec on that, when he, we brought him in uh, maybe 2017, 2018, but fast forward, I guess, from his visits to USM, he also uh, joined us on a podcast episode in March of 22, uh, where he talked about creating significant learning experiences around leadership education. And he, so Dee shared with me this pod network, which is for folks who work in centers of teaching and learning, faculty development, what have you on their campuses. And um, if you go to, uh, we'll put this in the show notes, but discussion at podnetwork.org. And it's one of those like Google groups, you know, like a listserv, if you will, for uh, our traditionalists. Um, and so there's so many great resources that come out. And it, I'd say maybe 
maybe two to three emails a day, I think is probably what comes through there. It's kind of like a digest, but folks may, you know, ask for resources or ask for help, or can you connect me to a keynote speaker or someone who does this or that or a webinar or whatever. Um, and so I was like, you know what, I'm going to try it. And so Lauren and I put together like a little, if you will call for experts and Claire was one of the folks that they reached out. We also have a couple other people that we're going to invite on the uh, podcast this uh, season that came from from that call. So what a great community, right? What a great community of practice. And so it's kind of like, you know, you ask, you shall receive. And so just really, really fun. And then uh, when you reached out to me initially, you shared that we also had a USM connection in common. And so that's what a small world, right? <laughs> yes, indeed. Very small world. I um, worked at USM right out of undergrad for a few years and also got my first master's degree there. So Place in my heart for Maine. I think I shared, I miss it. So yeah, I'm I'm pulling some Maine energy from you, Dan. I appreciate it. Love it, love it. Well, it is, uh, it is 30 and there's snow on the ground here right now. I don't know what it's, uh, but although you're not any place warmer. <laughs> Lauren's probably the only one that's getting a little bit warmer weather down there uh, in, in Philly, so... But in any case, so so you've um, as we as we shared as we were introducing you, so you have quite a bit of experience leading the faculty community of practice at your institution. And one of the things we talked about off mic a couple of weeks ago was how leadership educators spend considerable time curating their classroom environments to be you know reciprocal and relational in nature. You know, for example, like other engaged faculty will spend time during the first few class periods facilitating icebreakers, setting ground rules, doing classroom exercises, all with the the intent of building a safe and inclusive classroom community. So I guess the question for you is, how can faculty members build community amongst their peers in a similar manner? You know, finding finding folks like you, right? Like build, you know, those folks that can support you when things go awry. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I so I love this question because as a scholar of community, I think about communities a lot. What communities look like in the context of our classroom? How do we assess them? But for faculty and instructors too, I think, you know, I'm not state, stating anything that's kind of out there to say that it's difficult teaching in higher education right now for a whole host of reasons, you know, political context, global context, student challenges, pandemic learning loss, all that stuff. Um, And I think often what my observation is as someone who's in a role that works across campuses, across different kinds of institutions, across different disciplines, is that often uh, I hear from faculty and instructors that it feels pretty lonely, right? You feel like you have a lot of control over kind of what you do in the context of your classroom, but when you're facing challenges, who do you go to, who do you talk to, How do you get support? How do you think about improving your teaching? And I think we know there are lots of good resources that exist in different places. And what does it mean to think about building a teaching community for ourselves or multiple teaching communities that serve different purposes? So for me, I have the kind of luxury of seeing that in practice as someone who's facilitated cross-disciplinary, you know, teaching kinds of communities for early career faculty and instructors, things like that. And what we often hear from folks is, wow, I didn't realize how much I needed this community, right? To do things like bounce around teaching ideas, to improve our teaching, to get some emotional support. And also when the stuff hits the fan, to have folks who you can call on. So when you're facing challenges, when you're facing a difficult teaching context and trying to strategize and shift and adjust, those communities are super helpful. So what I mean by that are some examples are things like many folks find their teaching communities in their departments, which is great, right? You poke your head into your neighbor's office and say, how are you handling this? Or how should, how do you think I should handle this? Which is great. Not everyone has that sense of community in their department. Not everybody does, you know, sad to say. So where are some cross-disciplinary community options for folks? Um, within disciplinary communities. So I'm a sociologist and our sociology organization has a teaching and learning section. So where are those kind of disciplinary organizational teaching communities? And where are some cross-institutional teaching communities and affinity groups, right? So for those of us who hold marginalized identities, those kinds of communities with folks who share our identities are huge, especially in this moment. If I am facing some dynamic in my classroom that's related to my identity as a queer person, really helps to talk with other queer educators, right? About how do I respond to this or how do I debrief this, um, you know, based on a, a shared sense of marginalization. So there are those communities too. 
So those are the kinds of communities that I think about building over the course of a teaching career. It doesn't need to all happen right now. And it you may not even realize that you need that kind of experience of community until something happens. My hope is that folks are thinking through, how do I build those supports and those communities for myself along the way? But it's not always obvious. And it's not always something that folks are encouraged to do. And I think in this moment in particular, we know that communities can create change. So we can think a little bit about faculty and instructor communities as a basis for creating positive change in higher education too. You know, I was feverishly taking notes because there are so many things that you said that I wanted to, to comment on. Like the first one is, you know, finding your queer community. And it made me think um, early on when I first started grad school, I would meet for lunch with the director of the honors program. And at the time, I think my friend was, she's now in the teaching center, but at the time I think she was like in gen ed and the three of us, we were working moms in doctoral programs at different stages in our programs. And we met on um, like two or three times a week to write at lunch. And we just, we had access to a conference room. We sat down and I was doing my work at lunch so that when I got home at five, my then, my baby was like five or six. Um, I could put him to bed, make dinner, you know, all the things, and then go back to writing at like 10 o'clock at night. And so finding folks that have, that you have something in common with, no matter what those identities are, what those things in common are, is super helpful. Um, the other thing I think about is it, it, it was an isolated siloed experience before the pandemic to be a faculty member. But mm -hmm. now we're questioning the physical spaces that we embody. So like in my my university, I maybe a department and a half is in one building across campus from the rest of the college. So we're the only faculty members who do not have an office space in that college building. And even then I went from sharing an office with people to I now have my own office. So it has gotten more isolating for full-timers, but also adjuncts. And I don't think we consider adjuncts. And, and so like, I think at my school, I think our adjuncts are like friends. Like I think they created their own community because of that need to feel more connected and to bounce the ideas off of and the benefits of conversation. I also think we have more work. We feel like we have more work. So when you layer all of those things, like the informal connections or opportunities have uh, lowered, we have more work, so we don't feel like we can go and get the coffee because if we take that 10 minutes, we're going to miss doing other work. And then add to that, it's not just a like a full-time faculty, it's kind of everybody. I feel bad for our department chairs because they got a lot to handle, right? And so, but to your point, like creating those communities then feels of the essence. It feels like we have to do those things. Um, and so can you share like just a little bit about how we do those, but then also how does it translate into the creation of communities in the classroom mm -hmm. and how you balance, you know, the classroom as a community versus maybe focusing on an individual. So how does it kind of help, how do creating those communities help us kind of address that bigger issue? Yeah, I love these questions. So one thing I'll say is, uh, as a sociologist, you can feel the sociologist rising up in me, right? So I am a big fan of thinking about institutional supports for the teaching work that we do. So one example of that is, you know, are there, is it possible to give folks course releases in their early teaching career so they can start to build those communities through some kind of a program or presenting at a, you know, a conference and a teaching and learning panel, that kind of thing. So from the kind of faculty and instructor perspective, what are ways that institutions can support that work? Because I think what you're describing, Lauren, in terms of like overwork, my goodness, everybody's feeling it. I think all of us who do educational development, faculty development are seeing it. And so I think we're reaching the limits of what we as individuals can do. And so what are ways that institutions, departments, you know, colleges, systems, can support the need to do some of this really important work. It's a question of retention for folks at a minimum, right? So that's sort of one way I think it can be helpful to think about this community building work. It's not all on us to create space for that. I find it helpful to name that because sometimes we're not thinking it. And it's really important to think about for leaders in particular, how do you build those spaces into you know, whatever your workplace is and not just leave it up to individuals to find the time somehow magically to do that work. 
Um, and then so shifting to the classroom, I think thinking about kind of classroom practices, what does it mean to think about classrooms as community spaces? I think a lot of us engage in practices like Dan, you were describing earlier, that we are hopeful can create community among our students. And one of my questions is, um, how do we define community in the context of our temporary classroom communities? What does that mean? And I think there's a little bit of a gap in how we think about communities that I've been thinking through, you know, from my own perspective, how do we think about community, classroom communities, the spaces of collective learning, where students engage in practices that support each other's learning? So much of our conversation, our discourse about learning in the U.S. is focused on students as individuals, as individual learners, and students' individual feelings about senses of belonging and community, which I think is important. And when we think about our classrooms as community spaces, what does that mean? What does that look like? What does that mean in terms of kind of thinking about shared accountability, shared responsibility for learning? So it's not just me as a learner who is learning by myself, but how can I make space for, for my colleagues to make mistakes? How can I make space for um, checking in with my colleagues when folks disappear, right? And there are all kinds of practices that we can use that foster that kind of interconnectedness in our classes. I think that's a little different from some of the discourse that I hear in my role about individual kind of sense of belonging. So, you know, I think for me, this makes a lot of sense. Um, as someone who's taught a fair number of, for example, intro to LGBTQ studies courses, where you have a bit of inbuilt shared norms shared value, shared expectations, where students might come into your class, either themselves being LGBTQ people, or having family members or friends, or maybe coming out later, folks are coming into those classes with a shared sense of values, norms, practices, not always, <laughs> not always. So I want to be clear, not always, not all communities are to the good. And often, I love teaching those classes, because frankly, it takes less work to create that sense of community because it's already kind of organically there in the folks who show up in the class, in the reasons folks have for taking a course like that. So especially in contexts that are not especially friendly to LGBTQ folks. So for folks who teach classes in that genre, gender, sexuality, ethnic studies, I think um, disability studies kinds of courses, it's like, of course, we're building a collective here. We're building a sense of shared practices and accountability. You might say, hey, you know, where's Dan? Dan's been gone. Every y'all know anything? Like, is, is Dan doing okay? Um, so you have some of those practices built in, but in courses that are not like that, can we build those practices in? And can we figure out if they're doing what we want them to do? For me, that's kind of always the question, right? What's the evidence that the practices we're engaging in are actually creating community? beyond measuring or alongside measuring individual senses of community, right? What does that look like in terms of how we assess outcomes? That's a real broad response. Well, I was gonna ask you, like, does this fall into like the pedagogies of care that you write and you talk about? Yes and no, <laughs> yes and no. So, oh, that's another topic. I don't wanna get myself in trouble. So, you know, pedagogies of care, I think are something that show up maybe, um, maybe organically, maybe by design in, um, you know, courses that have a strong sense of community. I have a little bit of like hesitation around sort of pedagogies of care too, which we can talk about more if you want to. I can, why not, right? Um, so I think, you know, for me, I guess a couple of, caveats that I would say before I give my critique, right? So one thing I'll say is, first of all, um, like we like to say in my family that I don't want to yuck anyone else's yum. And what I mean by that is if folks find pedagogies of care and the writing, the kind of growing literature around pedagogies of care, pedagogies of kindness, helpful in their teaching, helpful to think about the kinds of practices they want to engage in, I don't want to take that away from anyone. So abs sure, absolutely. And in reality, a lot of the practices that are written about in you know, the pieces that I've seen on pedagogies of care are practices that are good for supporting students, right? Supporting students' mental health. Um, and they're the kinds of things that I endorse. And retention, again, that retention piece. And also, I have an interest in how what we say about our, teach our teaching affects what we think about our teaching. 
So the fancy word for this is discourse, right? I've used it already once today, sorry. Um, but how does discourse of care in teaching affect what we see as possible? So one of my questions around pedagogies of care is, um, I'm always asking for whom, right? And so for which faculty and instructors, who needs to be caring more, right? Who's already doing a lot of the care work and for which students? right? Which students are seen as worthy of care, which students are not. Um, so how can we think about this kind of discourse of care in a way that's connected, you know, I got a call on bell hooks here, that's connected to power and inequality and how we, we can make change, right? And so my kind of worry about pedagogies of care is that um, it places a burden on folks who are already doing a lot of care in the classroom. I think if any of us have read any of the literature on faculty and service work, we know that marginalized faculty are already caring, already caring a lot. And so many of us feel that way. And so is care, is kindness the right frame for how to think about teaching? Again, if it works for you, good on you, not trying to take it away. And you know, part of my concern is if we're focusing on care, if we're focusing on kindness, does, how is that still connected to inequality in some way? I have a colleague in sociology, CJ Pasco, who just wrote a book called uh, Being Nice is Not Enough, which is an analysis of the way that the language of niceness and kindness is used to avoid talking about difficult topics of inequality. And her focus is on a high school context. It's a great ethnography. So, you know, if you're looking for a very readable text that really carefully articulates this point, um, are we using language of kindness, niceness, care to avoid, or to kind of the word that she uses is sugarcoat, some of the inequalities that still exist. So not to put too fine a point on it, but I worry a little bit about some of this discourse and how it frames what's possible for our teaching or how we should think about our teaching. So that was a little bit of a soapbox for me. <laughs> so it's okay, I, bring your soapbox. Yeah. Oh, I got them. Yeah. yeah, I feel like you're you're soapboxing in front of the right the right place. Well, and and something you said real quick, um, the the faculty of color, like the people that are caring. I feel like leadership educators, because we're naturally concerned about people and 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 are immersed or hopefully immersed in followership literature. Like we understand the relationship and the social piece matters and modeling, and and we, so we get that piece of it. I also think to your point, there's starting to be an expectation of care. So I think about from K through 12, what a teacher looks like versus when you get to college, what a teacher looks like. And we're shocking the student system without even, without like one side or the other thinking about that. Like I know my K through 12 friends are saying like college is different and, but, but to, for 13 years, if you've had caring instructors to then move into this space at a pivotal time when your brain isn't fully functioned or fully developed, like it's a lot to process. And I don't know, we as faculty members really take that into account. Like I, I know I do because I had, you know, my, I have a 23 year old now, but I had a son who we talked about some of these things uh, and, and he helped me understand. But to your point, there's an expectation of care. Like you have to like your teacher to be able to learn. And I'm just like, that's not reality. However, I do feel like in that early level, that entry level, freshman 1000 level, there's gotta be some transition. So like, just so you know, when you get to a certain level, like every level it, it moves up so that they're transitioned a little bit more than just the, the steep drop that they experience. Um, but again, to your point, coming out of the pandemic, we were all in survival mode anyway, adding that extra layer. It, it And it's not, lovingly, it's not in your job description. Like it doesn't say care for students anywhere in the description and we don't get rewarded for it. It not, I just hate to say it like that, but there's no metric to measure how great we are at it. So it just feels like a, you really do it because you want to do it. And that should be the approach. So I'll jump, join you. I'll put a foot on the soapbox with you, if you don't mind. I appreciate it. I appreciate <laughs> it. And I'll add to that too. It's not even that we're not rewarded by it, which I think, by the way, just quick side note, if you are a faculty or instructor who finds yourself being in high demand, um, you have a box of tissues in your office, 
you know, I literally, <laughs> it's been my experience, um, to be documenting that work in a way that doesn't identify individual students so that you can show if there's an annual review process or a tenure process that this is work you're doing that's taking your time and energy. So that's just a quick little side note. So please be documenting that. Um, the second thing I would say is there are implications for, you know, those of us who have certain identities, if we don't do care work in a way that students imagine we should, right? Students have biases and stereotypes and beliefs coming into our classes um, because they're human beings like we are. And there's all this research about, for example, student evaluations, student ratings of teaching, and the implications if you don't adhere to what students might expect. For example, if you're a woman and students perceive you that way, and you're not as warm and caring as students might expect, there can be implications for your career. So these are not sort of just fluffy topics, like they have real effects on people's futures. And so it takes a lot of work to think about how do you establish, to use a term that many folks are using right now, how do you establish good boundaries around this work, right? How do you establish a sense of, here's where I can put my energy, here's what my role is, making that transparent to students, being real comfortable referring students to the good resources that exist on their campuses, um, finding other places that students can get care and support, and for folks who don't have those marginalized identities to be really good allies for their colleagues and think about what that means. What does that look like when you see that your colleague across the hall has a line of students out their door, right, with, you know, tissues in hand. <laughs> so, you know, what does that mean? How do you think about your own department and supporting your colleagues when you know that folks are taking on that additional service work? Oh, just a small suggestion maybe do a little more administration. <laughs> That's my thing. We're not even going to go there. We're not even going to go there. We can if you want to. But, you know, how do you share the load of that work, all of that gendered work in particular and racialized work to some degree too? And I think to your point, it's, it's how are you respectful in your engagement? So yes, you do not have to be super nice and like bake cookies and all the things. However, you do need to be respectful. And I feel like there's, there's, mm -hmm. uh, it feels like a muddy riverbed, you know, like mm -hmm. either be caring, don't be caring, be straightforward, set them up for the real world. Mm. You know, I, like, I always think if I'm your first like professional, if I'm your, your idea of what a leader in a professional space looks like, I'm going to model what you should expect from good leadership. And, and so, but I'm going to, I'm going to create some really clear boundaries, but I'm still going to treat you with respect, even like you or not, I'm still going to treat you with respect, you know, and I, I think that's where it gets a little murky sometimes. Yeah, it's interesting, and um, letting letting y'all um, on the soapbox uh, <laughs> together uh, wax poetic for for a bit here. Um, you know, it's interesting because this was a topic that I definitely wanted us to to chat about, Claire. And you know, this maybe even to present kind of like point counterpoint to this. It's like you you kind of you Lauren and, and Lauren kind of alluded to this be before. It's like you know, care for what, like care to what end, you know. And so this. And one of the things I remember, one of the times we had Kathy Guthrie on a few years ago, she, we were talking about like feedback and how the tough feedback that she'll give graduate students, particularly around their writing and, and what have you. And this idea that like feedback is love. Oh, and so like, you know, one, one of the things that, that you shared off mic too, Claire, is that how important it is to introduce discomfort into the classroom and how that can be a conduit to teachable moments. I mean, we know a bit about experiential learning, like it's getting students involved, but sometimes like having an emotional experience can be experiential learning and can be active learning in a, a teachable moment. And so I wonder like, how do we normalize this practice versus steering clear of it because we care so much about care <laughs> and kindness? How do we do that through building trust and showing students it's okay to fail? Can you, can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, I'm in Minnesota, the land of Minnesota nice. And so think about this question a lot. You know, listen, I have a whole thought about that, but we won't go there today. But this question I think is a really important one because, you know, it is part of this question of balance, right? How do we balance uh, productive discomfort in our classrooms, you know, without being a jerk about it, frankly, you know what I mean? And so I'm a big fan of transparency. So there's all this scholarship on transparency in our teaching, and especially at the introductory level, letting students know what they can expect in our classes and being very honest and transparent with them that, you know, I expect the most successful students in my classes are gonna experience some discomfort around learning 
right? Not discomfort around who you are, hopefully, but you're going to be challenged by some contact concepts in this class. And you're going to have to think about them. And you might have to do some things that are new to you. That's why we're here, right? So sharing a little bit about what those expectations are, even when it comes to things like feedback, sharing with students why you do what you do, right? And not to be like the stereotypical reviewer too in your feedback, like mean just for the sake of being mean, but to be clear and directive, right? And again, not sugarcoating, right? Um, maybe I just need a cookie today. I don't know, sugar. <laughs> anyway, so to be, this is why I do what I do, right? I try to be very clear and directive in my feedback to you. I hope you will be with each other too, because if you spend all of your time um, you know, with sort of nice language, but don't ever get to the point, that's actually not going to help us move forward. So doing some of that work of kind of good classroom community building of generating norms, right, norms and expectations on the front end of a course, um, having students contribute to that process in some way, and talk through what norms and expectations will be helpful for them in their learning. Um, and to know, kind of normalize discomfort, normalize mistake making. So one of the practices I've used often, this is just kind of a basic facilitation practice in my teaching is just to say things like, you know, I really appreciate any contribution folks have, and we will help you out, right? So I call on other students to help each other out. Like, oh, you know, Dan's struggling. Dan's got a great idea. Great start, Dan. I know you're starting with this concept. Really good start. Other folks, help Dan out help Dan out. So even just to say something as simple as that, and to think about your facilitation practices and how you speak with and to students, how you encourage them to speak with and to each other, um, I think that's kind of part of the conversation. So some of it is questions of norms, right? Those norms and values you're setting up on the front end, transparency with students about why you're doing what you're doing, um, drawing on your experience, drawing on what you know from previous students even sometimes having previous students share a little bit about what has worked for them, which I've often done in an end of semester survey with students. I'll ask them to share for future students. Um, and to have students engage in practices of listening to each other and supporting each other in the learning process. And to know that, you know, nobody hopefully to normalize the expectation that folks won't judge us for making mistakes in the space of this class. Other spaces, we don't have any control over, but in the context of our class, we can try to set some of those norms that we are learning in this space, right? And we will do our best to support each other and kind of engage in conversation that may be difficult and uncomfortable at times, but it's in the service of learning. So it's it's so interesting you say that because I always tell my students, I, I don't judge y'all because I judge reality TV. And so it almost feels like, <laughs> like I could, it is true. Um, and so it's like, I can really figure this out, but I also will model it. If somebody says something that's not right, I'll say, okay, I get where you're coming from. Like, tell me a little bit more. I'm like, okay, I could see that perspective in what we're talking about and then shift it. Um, but I also think too, like this idea of encouraging them to really own the conversation is so important. Mm -hmm. So I was teaching, um, in my group's class, I was teaching conflict and every other semester in life I've lectured, here's what conflict is. Here are the different tools. And so this time around, I didn't teach them anything. I mean, I told them like, here's a definition. How do y'all manage? Did a discussion. Then I gave them 10 statements and they're all like, Jason is arrogant. Susie is lazy. And it's all things you think in your head about your coworkers, but you don't say to them, you've got to figure out how to say it so that you get folks to change their behavior. Because I always say there's what you want and there's what you want to say, and you can't always do both. And so they're like, oh yeah, of course we'll do it. And they rewrite the statements. They struggle a little bit, but they give me some nonsense. So then I, the next class I come back and I'm like, okay, here's the scenario where Jason is arrogant. You be Jason, you be the person who has to give that feedback, and you be the third person who's just going to sit in on the meeting quietly. And when they have to go through it, you see them struggle. But one thing I then do is say, okay, coach your friends. Like, what advice would you give? It, better than any me lecturing on here's the things to do mm -hmm. and then all I jump in and do is say okay so that practice is called this it's and you I know you saw it in your your reading materials this is what this looks like and like and and so that discomfort in a space where we've already established like I call everybody by their names I ask them how they're doing a lot of them I've taken I have taken my class before so we know each other like so they know what to expect um that to me will foster some of that community 
so that when you say, okay, helps this out, they're like, oh yeah, I want to, because I feel like I can learn. Um, I've had so many students who say like, I don't, I can't learn from anybody else in this class. Like they're literally, they're just as dumb as me. And I'm like, well, first off, y'all aren't dumb. But also you bring a lot of experience. Let's, you know, and it really, I feel like that's the the experience that folks will take away more than what's the standard definition of conflict. And I feel like that's where we're trying to get, but it's through, I think these communities, like the, the bouncing these ideas off each other, that that idea comes out. So more of a statement, but I do um, wanna go back to something you said earlier. Mm -hmm. um, so in our classrooms, and this is more important for like our conversation as we're talking about faculty on college campus, um, how are we, or, or what evidence is there to measure whether or not the community is actually effective when you're considering how are we measuring like sustainable practices and also long-term change? Meaning like, how are we able to say with confidence, yeah, this community is effective. And then here's some ways we know that this community is effective outside of our like general experience. Yeah, I love this question for a couple of reasons, both as a sociologist and as someone who does educational development work. Um, my question, just to be a good educational developer, I have to ask, what are our goals? right? So we really have to start there, right? So are our goals in building community, is it, we could have many, right? Is it to improve student learning? So there might be assessment practices we would use to look at, do these community building practices actually enhance student learning? There are lots of ways we could measure that. Is it to support student mental health? So we know that connection to community, sociologists have known for decades and decades that connection to community is a huge aspect of supporting student mental health. So is it is that our goal? Is that partly our goal? Is it to reduce DFW rates, right? So that's related to the learning piece. Is it to increase retention um, in our majors or in the institution as a whole? And so part of this thinking for me of how do we know that the community is doing what we're doing, this is true for faculty and instructors too, is what's our goal? Is it to improve something? Is it to improve retention? Because for me, those are really the metrics to look at when we're assessing whether the practices we're experimenting with are actually doing what we think. So I would love to say that I have some tool, <laughs> some validated tool that we could just plop into every single course because courses are so contextual. Um, and it, it is difficult to say here are the characteristics of community that apply in every circumstance, maybe within fields, right? So maybe within leadership, that's something that could be explored. But I always encourage folks to think about their teaching as a little bit experimental. And so thinking about setting up either for your own learning purposes as a faculty or instructor, or more formally going through IRB and all that stuff, do you think about running a little bit of an experiment in your course where you try to incorporate what you think will be the most fruitful community building practices in your course and then assess the difference, right? So typical experimental design, does this improve student learning pre and post tests, right? Does this affect student mental health and connection and retention looking at students over time? Um, those are kind of the ways that I think about that as in my work as in educational faculty slash faculty development. Um, what are we trying to do? And then how do we think about it as making changes to our teaching in a way that's a little bit experimental and then seeing, are we achieving those outcomes or not? And it's really difficult, again, because, you know, the science of teaching and learning is um, sometimes oversimplified. I think it's hugely complex based on who we are as instructors and as faculty. It's based on who our students are, the kind of institution we have. And so it can be really difficult to say, again, here's something that's gonna work in every context. But I think at least starting to have that question of hmm, what if I try to incorporate one or two of these practices? What if I ask students, I saw there was um, in the Chronicles teaching newsletter recently, there was a, an English faculty member who had a practice of asking students to every week identify something that one of their colleagues had said that struck them or affected them and reflecting a little bit on why. So trying that out. So trying a couple of practices, the things that you're describing, Lauren, like see what difference it makes. Um, whether that's just, again, for your own kinds of improving your teaching purposes or whether that's part of a research study. Depends on what we're trying to do. 
That's my like non-answer. <laughs> like it depends. Students hate it when I say that, right? Everybody does. It depends. Depends on what we're trying to do. But it is a call to like refine what our purpose is in doing these kinds of things. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of overlap there with like the sense of belonging or community of practice. So if you were kind of alluding to earlier, like faculty on uh, on a campus, you know, we're trying to make this analogy between the classroom as a community and then, okay, you know, even if we're the most engaged experiential teaching award recipient on our campus, sometimes it's, it can be like pulling teeth and herding cats with like some of our peer faculty members, whether they be full or part-time around campus. And some of that is just a function of like other responsibilities that they have and adjuncts might have multiple jobs outside or teaching at multiple institutions and, and what have you. But also, like, do you have a center for teaching and learning at your campus is a question. Like, how much is the community or how much is does your university's budget af literally afford for faculty development around teaching and learning and pedagogy? And is it someone who has a course release and is, and is doing this on, on as their side job? to run a, a teaching center or some type of, of support? You know, are, do they have the capacity to have multiple events? Do they even have like a GA or anything supporting them to, to have events on campus? Are there small pockets of money to go to a teaching conference? Or And the list goes on and on and on. But I think about like, you know, what are, I guess in your experience, what are some of the in institutional supports that faculty need to, to feel that sense of belonging? And kind of to your point of like, if we did a pre-post test of like a faculty member on like during an academic year, right? Like let's mm -hmm. like sign me up to be part of the group that gets like some extra professional development money to go to a <laughs> conference on teaching to, you know, and, and we do have some of that going on in our, our campus right now. Well, some of it's very much a volunteer, but we have like an essential connections group that our associate dean has been running. I've been invited to a couple of those meetings, but I haven't been able to to be uh, as much a part of this group as I would have liked. But when I have been able to drop in, it's been really awesome. And at the end of each semester, they've um, showcased some of the students from these classes and some of the faculty talking about these, these intentional week by week, intentional practices that they're doing to create connection in the classroom. And so like, you know, we're celebrating that, right, as an institution and the president came and the provost came and the deans. And, you know, so I, I love seeing that type of thing and the way that they're involving the students Sometimes I feel like, oh, that's happening in like a in like a vacuum, like in an echo chamber. You know, it's like, can everybody see this? I wish we could just like put the bat signal out and like let everybody, you know, put a hologram of this on the on the side of our like student center so everybody can see that the stuff's going on. Because otherwise, I feel like it's happening and and folks don't know that it's happening. So like, what what are some institutional supports that you've seen that mm -hmm. really do move that needle um, mm -hmm. in that respect? Yeah, I mean, aside from the bat signal, which I love, by the way. <laughs> the pedagogy's bat signal, right? Yeah, pedagogy's a bat signals. Let's do it. Um, I think for me, kind of in a broad way, the two things that are most effective in supporting faculty and instructors around teaching and learning are um, time. I, I know that sounds obvious, but space and time. So whether it's folks who are adjuncts who get a little bit of like still have time, get paid maybe a little bit for that time to do this work or tenure track faculty, you get a course release or instructors who get a course release. So time is number one, but also think shifting how folks are assessed. So it actually matters institutionally that you do a good job teaching. And what I mean by that is not just adding that on top of everything else folks are doing, something else has to give, right? That's related to that time piece. So um, how folks are assessed, how whether and how their teaching is assessed beyond their student evaluations, right? That's a metric we continue to use despite all of its issues. Um, so really those, those two things, space and time to engage in these conversations. So, you know, whether it's a course release, maybe a little bit of extra money, um, and institutional assessment, how folks are assessed, right? Which is difficult because it's related to institutional rankings, right? There's all this interconnected, you know, motivation for institutions to do this work or not. So that's one thing I would say. The other thing I would say is, um, as your description, so you gave just gave a lot of examples of things that could work, Dan, and like a look, which is great. You kind of answered the question for me, which I appreciate. But you know, thinking about. Um, again, institutions vary so widely and being a little bit experimental with what kinds of things folks try. I think there are certain things that I see in my role. And again, that space and time is huge. 
The other thing I would say, just as you were talking, Dan, I could feel my blood pressure rising a little bit, like all of these components of things that folks are responsible for in relation to teaching. There is no end to the amount of professional development that folks could engage in related to teaching. There is no end. You could spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week doing stuff related to professional development and teaching. So I just want to say out loud, uh, one thing that I say in the graduate course I teach on teaching is to, if you have perfectionist tendencies around your teaching at all, you got to let that go, right? You know you cannot do all the things, right? And if you feel like your teaching is not exactly where you want it to be, I think continual growth is important. And at some point, the limitations are institutional and not individual, right? So at some point, I in my previous faculty role, I taught a 4-4 in addition to research and service. And you know you know when you're teaching a 4-4, you cannot do everything perfectly in all of your classes. You gotta let some stuff go. You cannot maybe give the in-depth feedback unless you wanna never sleep again. Um, you cannot give the kind of in-depth feedback that you know is better for students. You have to make some concessions and that's an institutional limit, not a limit of my personal will. And so I just want to say, just because my blood pressure was going up and I got to monitor that, to just kind of acknowledge that there is no end to how we could be improving our teaching. And I think the goal is to be a little bit strategic about small things we're going to try, right? So small teaching, James Lang and others, um, small things we're going to try when we have those kinds of limits and to find the things that are going to speak to us. So if we know we have an assignment in a class, for example, that needs some work, students have lots of questions about it, it's not really doing what we want, maybe we just focus on revising that assignment. Maybe that's all we do for a semester in our teaching and leave everything else the same. That's fine. So I think that relates to kind of the boundaries and pedagogies of care stuff we were talking about. There's no end to the amount of care we could give our students. And so where do we want to prioritize that work? I think that's kind of often what I say and what I try to practice in my own teaching with varying degrees of success, right? So I just wanted to add that to what you were saying too, Dan. Yeah, that's great advice. Uh, I was lucky early on, um, I had a colleague, Dr. Tracy Weiss. Uh, she said to me, like, your first semester, you're going to be terrible at this but it's okay. Like everybody is terrible. Mm -hmm. And so I one tell everybody that like, especially when they join our faculty, I'm like, look, just so you know, Tracy told me it was going to be terrible and she was right, but I've gotten so much better. And, and, and I think the, the perfectionist, I wanted to be the best and it's, you're not going to be great for a couple of years. And once you settle into that, it's a little bit easier to read your SFFs. Mm -hmm. also it also though keeps you engaged in teaching like there's always a little bit of something to learn every time you, you go out there and so so I wish you Claire I wish I had you I don't mm. know I'm 26 <laughs> years old so I don't know how many years ago it would be and how old I, was <laughs> when I actually started teaching mm -hmm. but, but younger earlier in her uh, teaching career, Lauren wishes she had you then to say those exact things. Mm -hmm. I'm sure your, your school, your colleagues are great for you now because I'm sure you impart those uh, words to them without risking uh, sending your blood pressure through the roof. Oh. Is there anything else you'd like to ask? I mean, just share that maybe we didn't ask you. Yeah, I mean, the thing that I will say, so I've been in higher ed for a while, and this is going to sound super hokey, and if you know me uh, in person at all, you know that I'm a little bit of like an Oscar the Grouch um, in a lot of things that I do in my teaching, but I am in higher ed, and I stay in higher ed because I really do believe in the power of higher education to change our students' lives and to change our world. I think that's why we're seeing a lot of backlash and resistance right now, and so I really do believe in the, the power of higher ed and the power of teaching. It's the bulk of the work that we do in higher ed. Um, and so I really think that's important just to say again out loud that this is why I stay in this work. This is why I approach it with kind of a sociologist mind because I'm interested in processes, processes of social change, what that looks like, how to do that best and most efficiently while keeping us all alive. <laughs> so you know, I guess that's the one thing I would say is I think we do have the ability to make a difference for our students. And it's really easy to forget that given all the news coverage of stuff that's going on, given our students' challenges and our challenges in our classes, how hard things are in this moment and historically. So 
that's why, again, I know it's hokey and it's going to sound weird to coming out of Oscar the Grouch's mouth, but I'll just get back in my trash can. Um, I really think that I think that this work is important and I think it is impactful and meaningful for our students. Yeah, totally, totally. So, well, thank you so much, Claire, for joining us today. We, uh, keep keep on fighting the, the good fight. Um, <laughs> and we, we appreciate so much your time and, and wish you well as you continue this this semester. And we can't wait to have you back on the podcast sometime in the future. Thanks. I'd love to keep chatting. Thanks for having me. This is really fun. Our pleasure. Leadership educators who may have a little trouble coming up with creative learning activities to further their course and program learning outcomes are now able to meet with Dan or me to discuss the process they use to ensure engaged and inclusive learning environments. Or if you're an academic leader looking for an external reviewer, Dan brings years of experience in education evaluating leadership programs. Contact us via LinkedIn today. Do you connect with leadership educators virtually? Please follow us on social media. Search the Leadership Educator Podcast on LinkedIn to find our page. And find us on Twitter at Lead Educator Pod for episode release information, show notes, and upcoming events. You can connect with me on Twitter at Dr. Underscore Leadership. And Lauren is at M-R-S-L-A-U-R-J-B. That's Miss Laura JB. You can find the episodes wherever podcasts are available. We also encourage you to please subscribe at theleadershipeducator.com and rate us five stars as the more you rate us, the easier it is for others to find us. We'd like to thank the James M. Cox Jr. Institute for Journalism, Innovation, Management, and Leadership within the Grady College of Journalism and Mass Communication at the University of Georgia. The support was facilitated by Dr. Keith Herndon, William S. Morris Chair in News Strategy and Management. And our wonderful theme music was composed, performed, and mixed by Dr. Matt White, trumpeter, composer, and associate professor and chair of jazz studies at the University of South Carolina. Check him out at mattwhitejazz.com. Matt, thank you so much for sharing your musical genius with our audience. And finally, we are grateful for the support of two professional associations that are destinations for leadership educators, the Association of Leadership Educators and the International Leadership Association. ALE, which funded the start of the podcast, continues to promote our mission of continuing conversations with leadership professionals. Check out all that ALE has to offer at leadershipeducators.org. The global reach of the ILA has helped us to expand our listenership beyond our original borders. Check out the ILA's programs and resources at ilaglobalnetwork.org.